Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. This week only Trevor Adams could be with me to discuss the the Theophilus of Antioch and Athenagoras of Athens. We will begin with Theophilus and then move to discuss Athenagoras' work on resurrection. In our two works on these figures, we have read all of their extant works. Both of them fit somewhat in the category of apologists, like Justin Martyr, writing primarily for an audience that might not already be Christian. Theophilus follows Ignatius as bishop of Antioch, and so continues the line of succession there from where we get our name, Christian. It is said that in the early church, Antioch was the heart and Alexandria was the mind. Theophilus is famous for having been the first writer to use the phrase um, creation out of nothing, although writing in Greek he does not say creatio ex nihilo as we say in Latin. Theophilus also mentions the divine triad, uh, which is where we also think of the word trinity in Latin. Um, And so he is the first one to look at God in, in this closer to what we know as Trinitarian theology. Athenagoras is from Athens, but seems to have spent time in Alexandria as well. If you go to our website, ahistoryofchristiantheology.com, you will see a map of the Christian world set around the beginning of the 4th century. We are only beginning the 3rd century with Theophilus and Athenagoras, but it was the best map I could find. I have added onto it all the figures we have studied and where they are from. We will try to update this map occasionally as we move from thinker to thinker, just to get a sense of where we are talking about in the world and in history. It will also become important to make a distinction between Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome and their unique developments of theology. Finally, we are working on a live taping of the history of Christian theology in Boise, Idaho, where Tom, Trevor, and I all met. Right now, we are looking at December 19th at the District Coffee House in downtown Boise. Please look for updates on our Facebook page for that event, which is a facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Now on to Theophilus and Athenagoras. The, uh, Theophilus to me was like a lot of just more of the same, except from an Eastern point of view. Okay. Does that make sense? Like it's very, you know, like uh, all the philosophers are wrong. Uh, demons have caused everything. Um, Christianity predates the philosophers. They yep. got everything from Moses, the true philosopher. And it's like, it's making me realize how much of a theme this is. Like, which is it? That's interesting, I guess, in and of itself. But yeah, you you called him Eastern, which is correct. Um, I, I'm not, but it's just it's interesting. I sort of couch. I think of Irenaeus as being from Gaul, from France, but technically, I guess he actually is from Smyrna, from Asia Minor. Um, right. And Justin is actually writing in Rome, but he's originally from um, 
Palestine. So there's not a very hard distinction necessarily between East and West, but I, I think I, I know what you mean in, uh, because um, he seems like what we think of as the Eastern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, like, I don't know. It's just he's more acquainted with the Eastern thought, it seems, in the sense that he's more acquainted with Hellenistic thought, I guess, if that if that makes sense. I mean, just and another thing is kind of like some of the other writings. Um, Theophilus is just sort of um, theology wise. I don't know. Not there's just not a lot. There's not a lot of theology. Like I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, I didn't particularly, yeah, so, um, I guess we, yeah, so let's, let, I mean, I, we sort of considered us diving in. Should we, should we start from Athenagoras and finish up him before we really, uh, yeah. go too much into Theophilus? No, yeah, let's go. Okay. So let's do the resurrection of the dead, Athenagoras. And, and we can use this as a, um, as a point of comparison between Athenagoras and Theophilus, uh, which is. The curious thing, you know, that we should probably just say from the outset, from the so Athenagoras, uh, we think was converted. He was a philosopher um, who gets converted by reading the scriptures. Um, there's some story that he was all uh, they they tell. Um, I guess there's sort of a, a apocryphal story that he sort of goes to the Mars Hill, and it's like he's hearing Paul um, give the. Um, uh, uh, argument from the unknown God to who Jesus is. And he sort of, he, he decides that he should investigate the scriptures. So he reads the scriptures and gets converted, becomes a Christian. Um, and then he gives this defense for the, uh, uh the, the, um, an argument for the resurrection. And he never mentions Jesus Christ, um, <laughs> which <Yeah>. is bizarre. <laughs> It is a bit weird. Um, Yeah, it's kind of like, instead it's this like kind of hardcore philosophical, like he gets into the metaphysics of people uh, to defend weird, weird objections that have been raised to the resurrection. Like, uh, for example, one of the objections being, uh, what what if you're eaten by an animal or something like that? And he has to address that. Yeah, you're right, though. It's weird. Uh, he is a Christian. Why isn't Jesus brought up? Yeah, um, and I I loved the Athenagoras reading. Aside from the fact that he doesn't mention Jesus, I mean, it is a. I mean, he's a philosopher. Like, I mean, through pretty through and through. Um, this guy is given a very in depth argument, and he actually does this thing that I sort of take all these Christians to be doing. Uh, which sort of aligns them with the ph- philosophic traditions of their period, which is he says we should get down first principles, and so we should get it. We should get across these things that um, these are kind of our rules for the discussion. This is this is how we're going to know whether or not an argument's good or not um, if we sort of have these things in place. Um, and so uh, he has sort of dissertations he calls them or thoughts about uh, the truth. Um, and about the first principles, and then you can demonstrate from the first principles other um, rea- other things that might be true as a consequence of the first principles. So I take this to be sort of like all scientists agree with the scientific method, um, 
and you don't really have to prove the elements of the scientific method, at least but once. And then once you all sort of agree that we're going to go about the scientific method by testing hypotheses and um, by doing experiments and ruling out nature and using um, a, fall- a fallibilist principle and these sorts of things, Athenagoras does something similar um, except for not using scientists, but he sets out some rules about how they're going to go through the inquiry. Um, and actually, uh, we'll get to Origen shortly, um, and, and Origen's great work on first principles proceeds in exactly the same fashion. And I also think Irenaeus is doing something like this. Um, and yeah. Yeah, now in context, though, this is kind of um, a defense uh defense of the faith to non-christians so it it does it it does exactly what you're saying it sets out first principles but it does it in a way that i think would maybe even shock some people nowadays because i hear evangelicals say all the time uh this really frustrating thing uh you can't argue someone to be a christian so why bother with knowing any arguments or why bother with uh knowing apologetics and it's like Whoa, uh, Athenagoras here would disagree, and he and he basically says, "I'm trying to see exactly where it is, but it's right in that first chapter." Uh, he basically says, "For so far as the proof and the natural order are concerned, dissertations concerning the truth always take precedence of those in defense of it. But for the purpose of greater utility, the order must be reversed, and the arguments in defense of it." precede those concerning it. And then he gives this analogy of, look, a farmer is not going to sow seed until he's prepared the ground at which the seed will fall. Similarly, we don't expect people to be receptive to the gospel. If at first they have, and here's a modern example, um, a, you know, maybe uh, epistemic or metaphysical uh, presupposition, or in, in layman's terms, it if they have some presupposition against what we could know or what there is, you know, if they think, for example, only things can be discovered through science, and that's just something they already hold on to. Uh, and so when you come to them with the gospel, they go, oh, this is literally impossible to know. It's something that science can't grasp. Well, first we need to correct that thing. We need to correct that belief. Look, look, uh, you know, there's, there's other truths, maybe, you know, there's literary truths. I don't know how you'd go about this exactly, but you need to convince them, for example, there's things discoverable outside of science, and then maybe move on. Uh, and so, similarly, this is kind of how this goes, except it's obviously pertaining to the resurrection, but he's like, look, we got to get rid of these, uh, he, he kind of calls them, I think, just stumbling blocks within the mind or something like that, but so, some sort of language like that, but when you get rid of those things in the mind, and then we can move on. And yeah, so, and those would be kind of like his first principles, I think. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. No, that's a, it's a good summary. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I, we can talk about apologetics a little bit. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. I, sometimes I'm skeptical of apologetics because I do think that we're working on first principles, but I find Athenagoras's way about uh, way of going about it very sort of responsible and which is to say like i don't always think that proofs for the existence of god or the reality of a resurrection are going to be knocked down 
and everybody's just, you know, like the smart person is going to hear them and go, oh, well, I've been, you know, screwed up my whole life. Now I know. Perfect argument through with it. I think what Athenagoras is, I take him to be saying in that line that you quoted um, is that it's sort of like, let's just show them that there is some reason. Uh, and some rationality and how we're working this out. It's not just totally arbitrary and it's not without any warrant whatsoever. Um, So you might not go with us all the way, but hear me out. We thought through this. It's not just totally random and unreflective. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't think, yeah, I think what you just said um, of what we expect of the modern here of arguments, excuse me, in apologetics I think is exactly what he is expecting of his audience. Similarly, he's not expecting their, them to just fall over once they hear these arguments, but he's expecting them to uh, at least go, oh, yeah, this is coherent, and uh, given given we now understand this, we can move on. Because, for example, he wants to just give them the gospel now, uh-huh. right? But what he's trying to say is, I just can't yet. You don't even think people can be resurrected from the dead. I first need to just give you arguments that that alone is possible, and now maybe you can you can receive the gospel, which is maybe why he didn't bring up Jesus. That's an interesting. Actually, I never thought about that until just right now. But well, and and yeah, we'll move on to Theophilus eventually in this podcast, and there's something similar at play there. And um, you know, I was trying to think of another way uh, to frame this, um, but. The whole problem of um, – well, just the whole idea of the, the philosophical background, and I don't mean to press this so much just because I studied philosophy. I've also studied a lot of ancient history, um, and what a philosopher looked like in, in antiquity is different from what a philosopher looks like today. So if you were to go to a philosophy department at a state university um, the way that they go about asking and answering questions is very different. Um, from the ancient philosophical schools. So you would, you know, you would live with the people you studied philosophy with. You would learn everything from them. And it was a way of life. I mean, you read some of like Marcus Aurelius's meditations, you get the sense that it's almost like, uh, he's almost like a psychologist or something like, I mean, they're doing behavioral therapy of some sort, like, or uh, not behavioral therapy, they're doing uh, therapy to change behavior. Um, and so today we think of philosophers only concerned with the mind and logic and getting the argument straight. But in the ancient world, they were very much concerned with action in addition to argument. And they thought that argument was the bedrock uh, for which you could live out um, this practice, especially um, in, in this period. Um, and so you would there would be different schools and different teachers and you would have to listen to them about their first principles before you would learn from them the deeper truths which they could offer. So I think, you know, I take all of these really early people to be in that philosophic mindset. Um, and we actually think that Clement, we're going to look at Clement and Origen shortly. Both of them were the head of the catechetical school. Um, and we'll have to talk about what catechesis is, but it's basically the early way to become a Christian. They, they would teach huh. you the principles of being a, a, a Christian. Um, it's sort of like going to Sunday school. <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, but, but they did it with, again, all the model to me, the backdrop is all of this ancient philosophical school. And, and that origin was a philosopher. 
Clement was a philosopher. Athenagoras was a philosopher. Um, and so that's kind of, that's what they knew. Um, and I think they, they sort of went, well, philosophy got us a lot, but Jesus gets us more um, and actually, you know, sort of unites not only our thoughts and our actions, but our souls uh, to God. Um, you know, I mean, I almost sound like Plotinus, which we're not, Plotinus is later, but uh, uh, but the middle Platonists maybe more. No, yeah, it's uh, re- reading this stuff. I mean, they want to see themselves above uh, Hellenistic, uh, just Greek ideas in general. They want to see themselves above the ancient schools, but, but yeah, you're right. It's, uh, the methods and the style of the ancient school has lent itself to these guys doing essentially what they were doing before, but now in a Christian context. And it's, uh, it is interesting. It's like it's the supreme philosophy. That's kind of what they want Christianity to be. They want it to be what who is it that we read? Uh Justin. Yeah, who you know, who's basically Justin who's trying to say this is this is just the supreme philosophy. It's philosophy above all the others. So yeah. So um let's let's think so what kind of uh what kind of arguments does he give in defense of uh why a, an ancient um pagan should be believe in resurrection i'm trying to look for the passage i took a note on do you have something to say right away because you um, should do it if you do yeah so i mean in chapter two he begins with the whole he says first you have to just get it out of your mind that it's impossible um and so let's 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 start by saying you know go with me so far let's at least agree that it's possible and then I'm going to show you other evidences that might actually, if, if I can get you to at least go with me to just say, let's not shut your door uh, totally to this idea. And then I can show you some other examples and then you might go, okay, that makes sense. Um, it kind of reminds me of a Modest Mouse song, um, uh, but uh, which there's this great line. Uh, he says, our ideas held no water, but we used them like a dam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> Uh, I, he, Isaac Brock has some of those amazing turns of phrase, uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting because he goes into this kind of actually hardcore, like I said, uh, you know, metaphysics of people, um, talking about basically uh, like this part. I think is the most interesting. It's not possible for God to be ignorant either of the nature of the bodies that are to be raised as regards both the members entire and the particles of which they consist. I think this is like him kind of just trying to establish, look, God's going to know literally all the particles of which you were made. And so um, it's not completely crazy to think that uh, then because of that and because of the fact that he's all powerful, he can rearrange you as he sees fit. So it's almost interesting. It's almost like God will recognize your particles even once they're not your particles, I think is what he's trying to say. But it's, you know, it's, it's this, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's very in-depth, but uh, defining, uh, I don't know. To me, it's, well, see, I was trying to avoid saying this because this is how, us moderns often are when we read ancients. It seems a little, to me, archaic in in his ideas, 
that we need to be these very same particles. But but still, that was the ideas of the time, and yeah, he's he's defending it um, right. within that framework. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, he goes through this whole problem of other, uh, yeah, bodies being parts of other bodies, Thyestean feast. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, then it gets, yeah, if if you're eaten, uh, what if a person eats a person, and then you become part of that? It's, oh, man, which, which I guess this could all be relevant for modern uh, talk of the Eucharist and Catholic Church, I suppose, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he just has in mind the like the ancient myths, of course. So Thyestes was uh, he ate the children um, of or no, Thyestes fed his children to the gods. Sorry, um, and um, and so there's this you know whole like eating of of human flesh, which actually Christians were accused of holding Thyestean feasts. Right. Um, and so it's interesting that he uses that as an example. I mean, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, may, I mean, maybe you're right um, in, in so far as if, if uh, they believe that, you know, literally they would eat Jesus's body when they would have uh, Eucharist. I mean, that could be the background. But as we said from the outset, he actually never mentions um, Jesus uh, in any of this right. resurrection stuff. Um, he, he argues um, that basically since God is the creator, um, he should also be able to raise from the dead, um, which makes sense. I mean, yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, essentially he thinks, you know, parts, uh, parts of you are nutritive and parts of you aren't nutritive. And, uh, you know, the body it's, it's all very interesting, but basically, um, you know, if you're eaten, uh, it's not like all of you is taken and into the body of the person who eats you and things like this. But this is why I just thought it might be interesting is he kind of is trying to defend this idea that even if you were eaten, you know, you can still be resurrected. And uh, I think there's a, you know, I think it's part of uh, the Eucharist doctrine in uh, the Catholic church that, I mean, the reason it's important that it, is the very same blood and flesh of Christ because somehow that is, um, you, or you partaking of that, that is what is um, bestowing grace to you. So it's, you know, I don't know. It, I thought it was interesting because this is almost saying like, well, you're not even really taking in the person's body, basically, in a substantial way in which that you couldn't be resurrected again. So I don't know. It's not like some... This isn't some knockdown argument or anything like that. It's just, uh, yeah, I just wonder how Catholics read this. That's all. I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to know, but yeah. Um, I mean, one point we could sort of discuss uh, in in relate. I mean, you know, sort of taking the next step, which is um, how does he imagine the resurrected bodies? Uh, or well, what does how does he imagine resurrection to be? So um, at the end of the Irenaeus podcast, we mentioned how Irenaeus believed in a physical resurrection. Um, so he believes that the, incor- the the corruptible bodies will be made incorruptible, but this in no way diminishes their physicality. Uh, the, uh, the, the suche, or the fuses, excuse me, in, in Greek, um, is, the, is the physical. Um, and so uh, Irenaeus 
thinks that we will have a physical body. The Platonic view um, of of resurrection is that the soul is immortal and the soul will always continue to be immortal. Um, so he never actually uses the language of resurrection exactly, but a lot of Christians sort of latch on to this Platonic uh, sort of form, uh, which is that um, resurrection means not that your physical body will live again, uh, but rather your soul will go to be with God in this imaginary place in the sky um, above the earth. And yeah. that's kind of how most of us view the resurrection. And what I take even Paul to be saying in 1 Corinthians 15, in the same way that Irenaeus argues it, uh, in that very confusing <laughs> in that very confusing passage, um, that the, the resurrection is isn't actually just about the soul it's about the body and the soul and and so so how does how do you see does athenagoras where does he fall on this continuum do you see it more as as platonic uh more just about the soul stuff and not so much about the body um chapter seven i think he makes that um that point clear. Well, also, just our discussion kind of presupposes, right? He, he is concerned about the body. Our discussion of him being concerned with what happens to you when you're eaten. Um, I mean, of course, he would, yeah, he would ignore that. He would ignore that as even an objection if he just could say to these uh, philosophers who he's trying to convince, no, you're just a soul. It's not a big deal. But so, yeah, he's definitely concerned with the body. And in chapter seven, he goes through. Um, how he thinks basically the resurrected body will be different from your present body. And yeah, it's, I mean, you can just read it. There's the word flesh is used about a hundred times. He, he definitely thinks you have flesh and, uh, it's different. Yeah, of course. Um, and it's, it's different in a lot of the ways in which we see already, uh, outlined in the new Testament, but he also goes into some ancient medical talk. Yeah. Talking about the humors, and it's yeah. very, uh, I guess, Galen-inspired, um, uh, you know, medical theory. And, yeah, so he, it's, like, a, yeah, this would be, I mean, at the time, this this would have been a very, I don't know, academic uh, text for, for a Christian to read, for sure. I mean, because this was, like, on the forefront of human knowledge, and here he is talking about, like, you know, pretty. He seems pretty well informed about it too. You know, modern medical theory and uh, how the resurrective body will be different in view of uh, that theory. So yeah, it's it's super interesting. He definitely holds on to the the idea though that it, it will be flesh. And you're right, modern Christians nowadays. Uh, yeah, I hear a lot of them not really confirm this. And I think I blame C.S. Lewis because there's this internet quote that you always see passed around that says, what is it? You're, uh, is it something like, you're not a body, uh, you are a soul, you have a body, or something like that. And then it's C.S. Lewis. And so I don't, I don't even know if C.S. Lewis actually said that. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I haven't read very much C.S. Lewis, but <laughs> um, so I'm not claiming that you know, no C.S. Lewis's ideas. But I've, I've seen that quote, and I've seen it attributed to C.S. Lewis, and so it's either his fault or it's someone on the internet's fault. But yeah, this idea gets passed around a lot. That well, essentially, I'm just a soul, 
So who cares if I really have a body and who cares about how we take this passage and, uh, yeah, that's that's the more popular view. Whereas Peter Van Inwagen, very famous uh, Christian philosopher, he's a physicalist. Yeah, so he doesn't even think you have a soul. So uh, this is by no means like a a one sided debate. Um, but uh, he he's inspired by the fact that I I think the Bible does definitely say, look, your your flesh is primary to who you are. And it will be resurrected. So yeah. Um, there's a. I, I don't even know if I have the ability to unpack this as beautifully um, as he lays it down. Um, and um, well, one of my favorite uh, contemporary theologians is a guy called David Bentley Hart, um, and I just heard him give a lecture on this. Um, but um, in chapter eleven and chapter twelve. Um, Athenagoras does this thing where he says, we actually can understand resurrection from the very fact of creation. Um, And so there is, uh, which is a way of saying God doesn't create anything without some positive intention for it. And so even though there might, there is, you know, sin and corruption um, because God created it. Um, for an intention to be good and God created it good uh, that he will ultimately see it through to the end. Um, And so this is what we call recapitulation, which is just a Latin word for like a re-putting back on the head. Um, And so returning to its source. Um, And now um, I don't want to get too much into the conversation of universalism, um, which is an attendant concern here, uh, Nevertheless, what Athenagoras seems to be saying is that we can know from the very creation of us being good that God has an intention for us to return to that good state um, and, and that we were created for a purpose. Um, and, and because God is good and God created us, uh, that we will see that purpose, that he will see that purpose through. Um, and um, yeah, so but he says, for nothing that is endowed with reason and, just, and judgment has been created or is created for the use of another, whether greater or less than itself, but for the sake of the life and continuance of the being itself so created. Um, very convoluted, but but it you know basically God created for a reason and for the sake of life and not for any other any other accident um, and and for a purpose. And so I, I just take it to be sort of a, a beautiful thought um, that you know basically. Um, you should look to the beginning uh, to figure out what the end is going to be. No, you're right. Yeah, he he seems to think uh, you know the existence is uh, one that is um, you know with purpose and not in vain. And and maybe this is not to always be referencing philosophy here, but you know maybe it's connected to Aristotle. Maybe he's he's thinking of the four causes. And he's thinking, um, maybe he's disagreeing with Aristotle here, but he's thinking, uh, you know, maybe the final cause of humans, the the what it's for, the one of the four causes that he distinguishes is just, yeah, to be resurrected. And so, um, yeah, no, it's it's very it's a very interesting idea. I think this would have been especially interesting at the time, given his audience. But yeah. And an interesting theology. I mean, I don't know. I don't think we would say 
uh, I don't know if we would say that's our purpose now, but that would be, it'd be interesting to think why, why physical bodies, why didn't God just keep us as spirits? I don't know. Good, interesting question regardless. Yeah, another, I mean, just another good line from chapter 15. Um, For if the whole of nature of men in general is composed of an immortal soul and a body which was fitted to it in the creation, and if neither to the nature of the soul by itself nor to the nature of the body separately, has God assigned such a creation or such a life and an entire course of existence as this, um, but to men compounded of the two in order that they may, when they have passed through their present existence, arrive at the common end with the same elements of which they are composed at their birth and during life. Um, so it's, again, it's just this combination of the beginning and the end, you know, created, uh, with a bo- created as a soul with a body. So it will always be in that state, the common end, the common goal. There's a harmony, he says, um, of this. Um, at, you know, I think one, uh, one issue in the background of all of this is a is a actually one of the reasons that Origen was ultimately condemned uh, was it seems that Athenagoras believes what Plato also believed, uh, which is the immortality of the soul, um, both prior to its um, you know creation in the body um, and, and afterwards, and that's that's anathema ultimately. That's that's a uh, that's heresy ultimately. Um, but uh, yeah. I also just want to say one last thing that uh, I thought was interesting by Athenagoras, which was uh, chapter 20. He thinks a man must be body and a soul in the hereafter so that the judgment passed upon us will be just. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was I thought that was cool. I mean, this is the kind of thing. I don't know. These are the fun type of arguments you see in philosophy today and in theology today. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I, I thought this was I thought this was interesting. I don't, to be honest with you, remember all the different points of the argument he makes, but it was it was a cool idea. Um, look, God's going to judge us, and for that to be just, we must be both body and soul. But anyway. Yeah, well, because the spotty has the sin in which <laughs> we deserve to be judged. So um, that's what it was. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, it has that that corruption uh, in it. So corruption and incorruption feature frequently here. So as stated um, earlier in the podcast, let's flip to Theophilus. Um, so we have another convert. Um, uh, Theophilus is from Antioch, um, and so um, we'll we'll get into what that that means more and more, but Antioch is one of the earliest centers of Christianity. It's the first place that Christians were ever called Christians. Um, and that features in Theophilus's argument, um, about what it is to be a Christian, just like Athenagoras. He doesn't actually ever mention Jesus. Um, (laughs) (laughs) he mentions the word, uh, but never Jesus or, uh, or, or Christ as a title. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say he definitely references Jesus in insofar as he yeah, references the second person of the Trinity so, about him at times, but yeah. Yeah, well and just I guess to jump right into it, um, he uh he, he Theophilus is known uh, in the history of philosophy uh, in the history of theology 
not particularly well. Um, but when he is referenced, he is the first person to use um, what is in Latin, creatio ex nihilo, uh, which is creation out of nothing. Um, so the uh, the Greeks believed that that God, uh, or at least Plato argues in the Timaeus, um, that, that um, the Demiurge, uh, the the second sort of form of God created matter um, from the preexistent stuffs. Um, and the Christians are going to argue for creatio ex nihilo. This is one of the great contributions, um, if you like, that Christians make to sort of general um, knowledge. Uh, and, uh, and Theophilus is one of the first uh, to argue for this is one reason he thinks that the philosophers are wrong, um, because he says if matter is preexistent, as the Greeks sort of believed, um, primarily Plato, but but others, it also comes out uh, in Homer and Hesiod, um, that um, that matter was formed by God, and if matter is is preexistent and is eternal like God, it is in some way as good as God, um, and so no, so Theophilus says no. Uh, God is the highest, um, God is the greatest, um, and God is the only eternal. Uh, so he had to create out of nothing. Yeah, it was either that or the ancients. Um, I mean, even as far as medieval philosophers went, if they if they did defend, which they often actually did, um, have to defend an idea of the world being eternal since that is kind of how it seemed to people at the time. They often did have to say kind of something like uh, emanation theory, that the world just has emanated from God permanently. And thus, yeah, it's, it's co-eternal uh, with God kind of in the same way. It's almost, it's similar to the language of the second person of the Trinity being uh, begotten, but co-eternal with the father. It's, it's kind of similar language to that. It's just, it's uh yeah it's eternally becoming from god so to speak so yeah i think uh john milton is the uh, paradise lost maybe one of the uh, foremost uh, proponents of the emanation theory um but my my medieval knowledge is is slight but i'm pretty sure that uh, yeah and uh theophilus gives uh in a few places theophilus does um sort of uh, etymology, which is kind of interesting. So in Greek, the word theos is the word for God. And um, Theophilus says in chapter four of his first book, so Theophilus is writing to Autolycus, uh, who is a um, person who's not a believer, who's not who's a pagan. And Theophilus is trying to give him an orderly account for why he uh, should think it reasonable to be a Christian. Um, and so he says, um, he says that uh, Theophilus says, well, you know, there are some... Um, especially the Epicureans uh, who did not actually believe in any gods. Um, and, um, and he says, but God is rightly called God uh, because Theos on account of his having place, Tethanekai, all things on, uh, on security afforded by himself. And so this is what um, it's interesting. He thinks that, that these two Greek words are related. And so the reason we know that God is the right name for God is because God laid things down. And those two words are the same in Greek. Um, and uh, I'm working on a paper on Gregory of Nyssa, and he'll actually give a different account um, for why Theos is why we is, is the name for God in Greek. He actually thinks it has to do with to see, because um, God is Theoreo, who is seeing. Um, 
Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Chapter 4 is also just interesting because it is, like, I think one of the first, like, almost definitive lists of someone just going through and naming attributes of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that's, hmm, that's interesting. I don't know the Greek, so it's interesting to hear Chad give his Greek facts. <laughs> well, Greek. The, yeah, I'm working on a ridiculously... <sighs> I don't know, esoteric paper, but is uh, the, the sort of a philosophy of language, but specifically geared towards uh, language about God um, in the uh, fifth, uh, fifth century, uh, well, fourth century and fifth century. Um, and uh, yeah, and theories of, of naming and language um, and, and how it, pu- so it's sort of a relationship between philosophy and theology. Um, I, I was geeking out over it earlier. I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Well, I had something to say from chapter two. Sure. Um, this really is starting to feel like kind of a philosophy podcast now. No, I, I'm kidding. But I do have a point to make from chapter two that I think is interesting because this is a uh, Something we're seeing in in philosophical literature, but this is definitely a theological point. It's uh, it this this point he makes in chapter two is that um, the same way your physical eyes see physical things, uh, your soul, as it were, has an eye or eyes, and uh, this can be obstructed by sin, he seems to think. This is his idea, is that uh, sin may stop us uh, from basically perceiving things in the immaterial realm, if you will. And this, uh, yeah, instantly this reminded me, and heck, this may have even inspired, uh, I'm sure, maybe later theologians and now today philosophers alive who are writing actually about... uh, this idea of having a sense of the divine, mm. the sensus divinitatis, and uh-huh. there's a lot of arguments nowadays uh, for this kind of thing. And, and for similarly, sin being the thing that obstructs basically our view of God, uh, so to speak. So, um, yeah, this is all just very pertinent, and it's just, I don't know, it's at the bare minimum fascinating to see it in this early of a text as an idea. And, uh, if, you know, if you were the kind of person looking for a, uh, really early precedent for an argument about that, uh, this might be the place to look. Um, because yeah, there's a lot of arguments nowadays about, uh, our sense of the divine allowing us basically a warrant in God's belief without any arguments. So anyway, I, I just thought that was I thought that was interesting. There might be some people who listen to this podcast who will go, Oh, that's cool. But anyway. Yeah. Um I mean turning to just general rhetoric from philosophy, Theophilus in book two has this line, he says, As you then afterwards urge me to do, I'm desirous, though not educated to the art of speaking, of more accurately demonstrating by means of this tractate. Uh, the vain labor and empty worship in which you are held. So he says, you know, you're you're held in vain worship. You're, you're worshiping false gods. But we have this. So this is going to become a trope, um, which is a recurring theme uh, in the early theologians. 
um, that they are not learned and educated in the art of speaking. So we've already heard, I don't know if we highlighted it, but Irenaeus says it. Um, Augustine, well, I don't think he actually says it like this, but he, he always puts forward this style. So there's this, the Christians feel the need to be humble in their style and not overly uh, verbose. And so it's, it's, it's a, I think it's some combination of the sort of ancient debate between the philosophers and the sophists. Um, so the sophists used to think of themselves as the great speakers and they would be paid for their art of speaking. But the, the logos, the, the logic, the rationality would often be missing. It was beautiful words, but no substance. Um, and so now you see Theophilus and other Christians wanting to have good substance, but hey, we're not trained in the art of speaking. We're not trained in the art of rhetoric. Um, and so there's kind of a humility here. Um, and this will be, I mean, this is just characteristic of, of um, Augustine's style is he's very concerned not to be arrogant and not to make a big show. Um, but in fact, he's making really complicated things. He's saying really complicated things, but in simple uh simpler latin um and this is actually greek but it's this this interplay between you know how smart should a christian be and they almost want to be look i'm not saying i'm overly educated here (laughs) um and and they really are concerned not to to put on a big show of how smart they are which i'm sure i'm breaking all of this by quoting greek and (laughs) doing this podcast (laughs) <laughs> right yeah we're we're the worst examples no uh no that's interesting what you're saying yeah because these guys are obviously wicked smart and uh they've done their studying and it is strange for them to say things like that but now that you put it in perspective that makes sense it's because they're basically trying to say look i'm not the best at rhetoric which is kind of just their way of saying you know, this isn't just fancy speech. Um, like, if you're convinced, it's just because this is true. And right. so maybe, yeah, they're trying to put some... Hu- maybe it's them trying to be, you know, humble, and it's right. them yeah. showing their humility, but it's probably also partly just them trying to say, uh, look, this is uh, this is as good as the substance that it contains, these words, and nothing more than that, so... Yeah. Um, Looking at uh, chapter 15, we get some real meaty sort of theology. Um, uh, It says, uh, in like manner also the three days which were before the luminaries are types of the trinity of God and his word and his wisdom. Um, So if you've been following along with us, uh, we're almost up to episode 20 in uh, in Irenaeus. This one will probably be recorded as like 21 or 22. Um, we This is the first time in two decades uh, that we will hear Trinity. Um, the, the big one that's known for it um, is... Uh, Tertullian? Tertullian, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's the first one who expounds it in what will be an orthodox fashion. I'm not sure that Theophilus is going to fit the Nicene orthodoxy here. Because he says the Trinity is God, his word, and his wisdom. So God is presumably the Father. Um, His word could be Jesus, but his wisdom being the Holy Spirit is where it kind of gets a little confusing because usually uh, wisdom is associated with Jesus. 
um, not actually the Holy Spirit. And yeah, it's not exactly clear what he means here by this trinity. Um, and then he says the fourth type is the man. So we're somehow, I mean, you know, so I'm not sure what he means by trinity. I don't think he means what Tertullian means. Um, and, and what will become uh, orthodoxy eventually by by Nicaea in 325. So Theophilus, again, writing at the end of the second century, 180, 190, something like that. Um, you know, we're 150 years, 140 years from Nicaea. And he doesn't really look like what, what Nicaea is going to say. What, what Greek word is being translated as Trinity here anyway? I mean, why? Triados. Okay, so there were... Like okay. a triad. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, this is why, I mean, I was thinking about that because obviously we kind of get our idea of Trinity from a Latin word since we basically do get it from Tertullian. Um, but, yeah, I was I was wondering as I read this, I mean, it's in English, it's Trinity, but I was like... You know, what really is this? I mean, just uh, a grouping of three? I mean, yeah, it it does seem like that's pretty far from, uh, you know, the three persons and one substance that we get in the, uh, I guess, orthodox view of the Trinity. So, yeah, and his word and his wisdom, that part is weird because normally, I mean, at least I think that those are correlated because yeah. I always see God being, uh, when explained in, in a trinity, I always see the second person of the trinity always being kind of, uh, because it's this word logos, kind of being looped in with this ancient uh, Jewish idea of the trinity, uh, or sorry, not of the trinity, this ancient Jewish idea of the wisdom of the Lord that was with him, uh, and uh, help fashion the world with him in creation. Uh, the world's created through his wisdom. So this, anyway, yeah, I I see your point. And you know what? In general, when I just was doing some kind of background research on Theophilus, uh-huh. this was the thing. And I I can't even name websites or articles at at this time. So sorry, audience. I don't know my secondary sources, but. I do remember this being the thing that was most referenced to Theophilus was like, it's one of the first times you see the word Trinity really. Um, but no, it's a good point to, to say it may not be the Trinity we're really thinking of. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a little, one thing that I work on, you know, all the time is what do we mean by history and how do the, where do these doctrines come from? And there's like a Catholic view that, um, in that when the Holy spirit came down at Pentecost, um, Peter was taught everything and that the church has been teaching the same thing for 2000 years. Um, that is a view, (laughs) um, Protestants, Protestants have had a hard time with that uh, conception, um, and even some Catholics have had a hard time with that. So, um, I mean, so it's not necessarily the view of every Catholic, but it is kind of the dominant view. Um, but uh, that, 
you know, so clearly here, this guy's going in a different direction. Um, but they're all, they're all groping for words at how to express this ineffable mystery. Um, and luckily Theophilus gets to do it, um, before, uh, before there is a Christian emperor who's sort of controlling the dialogue. Um, and there's, as you know, Christianity is more in its, um, uh, incipient form and, and it's, it's, um, it's not fully developed form. It's amazing how close they are. Um, in a lot of readings, um, he actually talks about the prosopon, the face, um, of Jesus. He talks about being in the same, we've talked about being in the same essence. There's a lot of these words that are going to come up in Trinity in, in the Trinity debates. And it's amazing how close they are. Um, on the other hand, I'm just not sure that he, he's actually saying the same thing as, as Tertullian. Yeah. Even, um, I was going to say the same thing even about his Christology, uh, which I think is in its fullest display in chapter 22. Um, which is titled why God is said to have walked. Um, but he, he talks about Christ here once again, right. indirectly the, this work once again, it's language of the sun and the word, but it is kind of, I don't know. It's to me, at least it's not explicit. He's really thinking separate person here. He's thinking like not another person, the sun he really is kind of uh, putting it in language of this is the words in the heart of God. I mean, quite literally, that's Christ. Because, uh, I don't know, there's a passage where he says, uh, he, he's, he's even going back to the Garden of Eden, for example, and he says, assuming the, the person of the Father and the Lord of all went to the Garden, in the person of God which is, I already think, kind of strange, and converse with Adam. For the divine writing itself teaches us that Adam said that he heard the voice. Mm -hmm. But what else is this voice but the word of God, who is also his son? So it's like, I mean, quite literally, he's thinking, Adam heard this voice. This voice is the words of God. Oh, so Adam heard Jesus, basically. I mean, that's... I mean, that's kind of what we're supposed to take away from this. So it's, it is very strange. Um, I'm not even sure about this either. I mean, once again, he doesn't mention Jesus as the human that did walk the earth. So perhaps this is him uh, minimally talking about the second person of the Trinity before Christ. I don't, I don't know, before the incarnation essentially. So maybe uh, maybe his Christology is different if he had some uh, thoughts here about the incarnation, but I, I did think uh, I did think this was strange as well. So anyway. um, Well, we're we're running short on time here. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I let me look just real quick. Those are the two main things. Um, everything else is just kind of, you know, we could rant about little things here and there, um, for a while, but no, yeah, those, to me, those are the biggest theological ones. So 